and welcome to another edition of The Peace Production, the podcast from the Organisation for World Peace, where we examine current issues threatening human security. My name is Catherine Everest. On this edition of the podcast, myself, Monica Sager and Andrew Bernstein are fortunate enough to speak with Senior Lawyer for the Human Rights Law Centre, Charlena Musk, and Honorary Doctor, Andrew Lee. We speak with each of our guests about the disproportionate incarceration rates of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adults and youth in comparison to their non-Indigenous counterparts. We draw expertise from Charlena on the Human Rights Law Centre's campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14 in Australia and hear from Andrew about how a return of mass imprisonment within Australia is disproportionately affecting the population. Charlena is a proud Larrakia woman from Darwin in the Northern Territory. She is a senior lawyer within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Rights Unit at the Human Rights Law Centre in Melbourne. She has over 19 years experience as a criminal lawyer, working heavily in the Northern Territory and Western Australia. Charlena has worked for over a decade in Aboriginal legal services and was instrumental in the creation of a specialised youth team in the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency. Charlena's work aims to reduce the overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, particularly youth, in the criminal legal system. Welcome to the show, Charlena. Oh, thanks for having me. Andrew Lee is the Shadow Assistant Minister for Treasury and Charities and currently represents the Australian Labor Party as the member for Fenner in the Australian Capital Territory. Andrew is an economist whose career has seen him awarded a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Social Sciences and a Young Economist Award by the Economics Society of Australia. Recently, Andrew has focused his research on the overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in prisons across Australia. Hello, Andrew, and welcome. G'day, great to be with you. Thank you very much. We're glad you're on the show too. So you released a discussion paper in March of this year called The Second Convict Age, explaining the return of mass imprisonment in Australia. Your study focuses on historical changes in incarceration rates from the 1860s to 2018. What changes have we seen over time in relation to incarceration rates within Australia? The story over that period is, uh, well, first of all, a big fall. We, uh, we had a higher incarceration rate than uh, apartheid South Africa uh, in, the, uh, in 1860, but then fell pretty swiftly through to Federation when it was about 200 prisoners per 100,000 100, adults. So by 1940, it was down to uh, less than 100 prisoners per 100,000 adults and stayed moderately low until the mid-1980s. Um, but since then, we've had more than a doubling in the incarceration rate. We now have a, a situation where Australia is locking up uh, about 220 prisoners per 100,000 adults, uh, the highest incarceration rate uh, in uh, 120 years. What particular trends did you witness through your study in relation to the incarceration rates of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples? So the Indigenous incarceration rate has, has received significant attention. There was a, a report on Indigenous deaths in custody in 1991 when it was noted that uh, Indigenous incarceration was extremely high. Since then, it's more than doubled. That's true whether you uh, standardise the age population, the age of the Indigenous population or not. Uh, Indigenous Australians are younger on average than non-Indigenous Australians, so, and, and incarceration is more common among young people. But adjusting for that still doesn't make too much of a difference. You see an, incarcerate, an over-incarceration rate 
of Indigenous people, which is many, many times that of non-Indigenous Australians. So, Andrew, in your study, you also compared the incarceration rates of Indigenous Australians with that of African Americans. What did you find when you compared the incarceration rates of each of these groups? It turned out to be pretty striking. I mean, even if you go back as, as recently as the year 2000, the African American incarceration rate is twice the Indigenous incarceration rate. Uh, but then you've had this significant change in criminal justice policies in the United States, uh, driven largely by a concern for saving money. There has been a series of bipartisan reforms in the United States which have seen that country's incarceration rate fall markedly, uh, and particularly for African Americans. In 2017, uh, we saw for the first time the uh, two rates cross one another, such that Indigenous Australians were more likely to be incarcerated than African Americans. That's led to one of our senior Indigenous leaders in Australia, Noel Pearson, saying that Indigenous Australians are the most incarcerated people on the planet. Now, Charlena, the public dialogue that does exist within Australia surrounding the incarceration rates of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples largely centres around adults. We know that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adults constitute 27% of the national prison population, despite only making up only 2% of the national population. How do incarceration rates affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth? So there's a lot of data out there and if anyone wants to verify, I'd encourage you to get on uh, the website for the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Um, all this data is there. But what we know about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids, 10 to 17 years of age, is that they make up around 6% of the Aboriginal, or sorry, Australian youth population here in Australia. But tragically, they account for around 48% of all children who are under youth justice supervision on a given day. And almost three in five, or just under 60% of children who are in detention on any given day. Where I come from, the Northern Territory, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids account for around 95 to 100% of children in youth prisons in the Northern Territory. How do incarceration rates of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth compare to rates amongst non-Indigenous youth? Yeah, again, I'd encourage people to get on the website of the AIHW, but um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people are almost 16 times as likely as their non-Indigenous counterparts to be under youth justice supervision on any given day, and tragically 22 times more likely to end up in youth detention than their non-Indigenous counterparts. So the disparity is quite stark. You talked about how they're being charged, but can you describe their treatment of the Aboriginal Strait Islander youth um, while they're in the criminal legal system then from what you've yeah, witnessed? There is differential treatment, particularly when it came to portions diversion. And I've seen kids as young as 10 and 11 years of age in places like Banksia, Hilford Detention Centre in WA and in Dondale, children who you know, I just needed a helping hand rather than to be criminalised and forced through the system. Children who were failed by the child protection system and the education system. None of the kids were actively going to school during um, the time they were going through the courts. They were children who were disconnected, unsupported and tragically really uncared for and unloved. And it wasn't because their family didn't care about them. There's been the interactions of the child protection system in a really discriminatory and hurtful way and the failure of the education system to understand the unique needs and experiences of Aboriginal kids. And it's not a culturally safe education system in the NT. I don't know if you've seen a film called In My Blood It Runs, 
but that film very much encapsulates the experiences of too many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids when it comes to interactions with the three systems that somehow compound disadvantage and result in adverse life experiences for Aboriginal kids. So there is differential treatment, there is bias and discrimination, and that's why Aboriginal kids are more likely to end up in prison than their non-Indigenous counterparts. Throughout discussions, concerns were raised regarding a vicious cycle that may be disproportionately affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as a result of increased incarceration rates. Charlena alluded to the increased likelihood of further offending and incarceration as an adult if a child has previously been exposed to the criminal legal system at a young age, while Andrew pointed to the increased likelihood of a child being caught up in the criminal legal system if they have a parent who has previously been incarcerated. The rate in Australia states that there are 77,000 Australian children with an incarcerated parent. Does research show that there is a direct relationship between having an incarcerated parent and the future crime commitment? Yeah, so mostly yes. Uh, there's one study which, uh, which points in the opposite direction, but there's a question over the power of the sample size. But in general, I think uh, the intergenerational effect is, is regarded as pretty strong. Certainly a much higher share of prisoners have a parent who was previously incarcerated than do the uh, general population. And we know that kids whose parents offended are more likely to have conduct problems at age 11, uh, more likely to do poorly in school, uh, more likely to have psychological problems. So I think we, we do need to worry about those 77,000 kids who themselves have done nothing wrong. It's not their fault that mum or dad is, uh, is locked up behind bars, but they bear the costs of that significant uh, incarceration. What are some of the immediate and long-term consequences of such a high rate incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth? I don't know if people are aware, but Don Dale, which was showcased um, quite horrifically in Australia's Shame, and we saw Dylan Boller being placed in a, in a chair, strapped to that chair in a, in a spit hood um, and restraints over his body. That is a former maximum security adult prison. It used to be Berrima Prison that was destined to be decommissioned and bulldozed many years ago, but then became repurposed and recommissioned to house children. It is a prison with all the infrastructure, I'm talking razor wire, metal bars and concrete cells. So it's a place that might have had a cosmetic change with a new coat of paint and maybe a sprinkling of programs and services, but it's still a maximum security adult prison. So I just want to let people know that yeah, yeah. Um, and the sort of practices that are endemic in these youth prisons they're not detention centers I know that might be the, the language that is used for these facilities but there's practices there that are quite harmful for children who are really going through really significant changes in their physical emotional mental development and we're locking up kids as young as 10 but children are subject to routine strip searching solitary confinement um, the use of restraints like shackles and handcuffs. I think people really need to understand is when you remove a child um, and, and lock them in a, in a prison cell, you're taking them away from their home, their family, and any social supports that may be in their life. So not only are they losing their liberty, they're losing their childhood, and they're being taken away from protective factors that could really help them. And it can create great stress on that child and actually impair adolescent development, compound mental illness and trauma. We know that the vast majority of children who come through the youth justice system and end up in prisons are children who are victim survivors of trauma 
around 60 to 70% in Victoria, I know, are children who are known to child protection systems. So we've really got children who've suffered adverse life experiences and who may well have mental health issues, disability, um, and a trauma background. And so we're putting them in a place like a youth prison, subjecting them to really horrific practices and somehow think that they're going to turn out better. They don't turn out better. For Aboriginal children, um, it can be even more devastating, not only the social isolation from family, community, country. I mean, I've seen so many kids from remote communities in the Northern Territory in Western Australia who have taken hundreds if not thousands of kilometres away from their community into a foreign environment like a youth prison, a whole different system, a whole different social structure. When they're children who have lived in a quite open community, it can be catastrophic. And I've seen children develop mental health issues as a result of their time in custody. So, it really is a system where children shouldn't be exposed to. And uh, I think we only reinforce the behaviours that we're trying to change and set them up for a future life of further offending and entrenchment in the system. Both Andrew and Shalina point to systemic biases throughout the criminal justice process that have led to the increased incarceration rates of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adults and youth that we are witnessing today. How do you think the situation of, of Indigenous Australians compares to that of, Af of African Americans in terms of, you know, why they're being incarcerated or what their general socioeconomic or social situation is, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the policies which have led to the rising overall incarceration rate have affected Indigenous Australians uh, in just the same way. Uh, and, and that's right through the criminal justice process. So if you uh, commit an offence, it is more likely people will report it to the police. If the police get a report, it's more likely that they will catch you. Uh, if they catch you, it's more likely that they will press charges. Uh, while you are awaiting trial, it's more likely you will spend time behind bars rather than out on bail. Then when you get in front of the judge, it's more likely the judge will convict you. Then if the judge convicts you, it's more likely you will go to jail. Then if you go to jail, it's more likely you'll go for a longer sentence. And Charlena, when comparing the rate of incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth in comparison to non-Indigenous youth, and through your work, what have you witnessed to be some of the underlying causes leading to this disparity? Yeah, so people may make this assumption, it's a real dangerous assumption that Aboriginal kids are out there committing more crimes. That's not the case. There are structural issues um, like inconsistent policing practices, which I can talk to a bit, there is bias and there is discrimination in the operation and administration of the criminal legal system in Australia. And that really comes down to decision-making powers of the key institutions like the police, like the courts, like the corrective services or youth justice services. And there's really um, a strong, I, I see a criminalisation of health conditions, mental illness and disability. Getting back to discretion, and uh, and really when I say that there is bias and discrimination in the administration of the system is, just take diversion and cautions. So police are the gatekeepers of the criminal legal system when it comes to children and young people. They determine whether or not a child should be cautioned or diverted out of the formal system, as opposed to being charged and proceeded against in the courts. And there's a lot of data, there's been reviews after reviews, including the Northern Territory Royal Commission, that actually looked at the use of portions and diversions as opposed to formal charge. And of course, the data backs this up when it says that Aboriginal children are more likely to be charged rather than diverted. Um, they're more likely to be arrested rather than summoned or given a notice to attend court. 
the more likely to be remanded in custody, so kept in a prison awaiting the outcome of their matters rather than bailed, are put under conditional liberty order. So um, it is really geared, the operation and administration of the system, to keeping Aboriginal kids firmly entrenched in the system and um, having adverse experiences with the system. And I can talk to just, uh, just one aspect of the data. Um, the Anti-Royal Commission looked at the use of well, charging and for the offence of breach of bail, and it looked at just one year, and it found that Aboriginal children were being arrested more readily and more frequently for the low-level offence of breach of bail, accounting for 95% of those kids arrested for that offence in one year. Again, like Aboriginal kids make up around 40% of kids in the Northern Territory, and they were 95% of the kids that were being arrested for breaching bail. So breach of bail could be anything from breaching curfew, um, not reporting at a, a police station as a condition of their bail. And out of that number, around 50% of those kids were kids aged 10 to 14. The Human Rights Law Centre is part of a national campaign calling on Australian governments to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14. You explain to our listeners the reasons and evidence behind this. Yes, sure. So the whole campaign is trying to convince Australian governments that we need to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 years of age. So right now in each state and territory, a child as young as 10 can be arrested by police in relation to an offence. They can be charged, hauled before a court and locked up in a youth prison. Such a low age uh, is in breach of human rights standards and puts Australia out of touch with the rest of the world where the medium age is 14. And we know that early contact, so contact when they're 10, 11 or 12, only increases their chance of lifelong involvement and really entrenches the behaviours that we're trying to change. There's a whole range of reasons for raising the age. Our partners in the national campaign include health experts and paediatricians, and there's a lot of information around the neurodevelopment of these children. So neuroscience tells us that children this young's brains have not fully developed parts responsible for consequential thinking um, and impulse control are not fully formed yet and won't be until they're in their 20s. So children this young, they're not at a cognitive stage of development to fully appreciate the criminal nature of their actions or the lifelong consequences of being labelled a criminal. And I, I talked about reoffending rates. Reoffending rates are substantially high the younger it is that a child comes into contact with the system. And there's been some data looking at 10 to 12 year olds. So the recidivism rate, so reoffending rates, particularly if a kid ends up in detention, is something around 86 to 90%. So we're really entrenching behaviour and potentially contributing to lifelong criminals. And we know that so many of these children are known to the child protection system. They're victim survivors of abuse, mistreatment and neglect. They're children who need help rather than to be criminalised or end up in a prison or a police cell. Many of these children have disability and health needs that are undiagnosed and untreated. There was a recent study by um, Telephone Institute in Western Australia that looked at the kids in detention there over a period of time to see if any children had FASD or other neurodevelopmental disability. And it found 86% of the children in custody, sentenced detention, had a neurodevelopmental disability. And around 36% of them had FASD. So we're talking about kids who have serious disability needs are being forced through a criminal legal system. And so many of those kids in WA, the subject of the study, around 75% of them were Aboriginal, had been known to other systems and had not been formally diagnosed for their health or disability needs and, and, and offered treatment. Had they been offered this treatment 
earlier, had they had their disability diagnosed, would they be in prison in WA at the time of the study? I, I doubt it. The, the Council of Attorneys General Meeting was held on the 27th of July this year, and the meeting gave Australian lawmakers the opportunity to change laws that currently allow children as young as 10, as you've pointed out, to be detained, charged with an offence and put into prison. What was the outcome of this meeting? Yeah, so the Council of Attorneys, they did meet in July and there's a, a record of the outcome of that meeting. It's called the Communique. Um, and in brief, and I'll just read from it, but it's, it just noted the progress of this dedicated working group that was tasked to inquire into whether Australian government should raise the age of criminal responsibility. And it simply noted that further work was needed to occur and in quotations, regarding the need for adequate processes and services for children who exhibit offending behaviour. So they're saying that they need to know what is the alternative response if we raise the age? What services and programs exist in the community? Or is there, are, there, are there gaps that we need to be able to fill? Whilst we were disappointed by the failure of our chief lawmakers to finally make a decision on this important issue, for us, I don't say that this is a be all end all, we've got time. And now it's about trying to get everyone else on board and, and show our governments that we all believe kids as young as 10 should not be in prisons. They should be in playgrounds and classrooms. And in a recent call to action to Australian lawmakers, a 12-year-old Aranta Garawa boy by the name of Juan addressed the UN Human Rights Council at their 42nd session on behalf of the Human Rights Law Centre. In his address, Juan implored the UN Human Rights Council to call on the Australian government to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 14 and help implement Aboriginal-led education models. What has been the response of the UN Human Rights Council or other UN bodies to Juan's calls? Yeah, so I was there with Juan in Geneva and it was really emotional and it was probably the proudest moment of my life. I felt like Juan was like my nephew and I was so proud of him. Uh, but he was the first child that young to get accreditation and be permitted to deliver that statement. And his statement and his presence there actually led to him being invited to meet the High Commissioner, Michelle Bachelet, in Geneva. And of course, he made a huge impression on her regarding his experiences in the education and child protection systems in the Northern Territory and how that led to his early contact with the youth justice system. She then came to Australia last year and she highlighted uh, Joanne's experiences and again criticised Australia for failing to raise the age of criminal responsibility. I haven't seen anything come from the Human Rights Council regarding the low age of criminal responsibility, but multiple UN bodies, treaty bodies, have uh, over many years criticised the low age of criminal responsibility. Um, it's not just the Committee on the Rights of the Child, there's multiple human rights bodies that have done that. And of course, with Australia was just reviewed by the Committee on the Rights of the Child in September of 2019. So I think that, you know, Juwan being there has had a significant impact on United Nations treaty bodies, but he's also had an impact on Australian decision makers. I was on so many panels with Juwan and the, the filmmaker Maya Newell talking about Juwan's experience of film and youth justice system in the Northern Territory. He um, showcased the film in parliaments across Australia, including the Northern Territory, Victoria, mm. and even film festivals in, in Melbourne International Film Festival last year, where he offered myself and other um, champions for the age the space to talk about the reasons why we need to raise the age here in Australia. So he has really been a driving force behind our campaign's early stages 
and giving the national attention that this issue desperately needs. Yeah. And so I guess in him going outside of Australian borders and, and speaking with an international institution, how can international institutions such as the UN play a role in assisting with reforms of the youth criminal justice system in Australia? Yeah, look, I think there's only so much we can do on an international level. So we've got treaty body after treaty body continually grilling Australia's compliance with its treaty obligations. And where I've worked, our organisation's been part of the ICCPR review, the CEDAW review, again, the Committee on the Rights of the Child review last year. And, and we get these experts providing guidance to Australia on how to ensure compliance and respect in the promotion of human rights. But the Australian government often drags its heels or fails to act. And I, I went back through one of our old NGO collaborations to the ICCPR in 2017 and this was just a snapshot from that report but it said since 1994 Australia has been found to be in breach of its international obligations with respect to 45 individual communications to various human rights treaty bodies and it went on to list all the treaty bodies. When now three years later and then there's been so many more breaches and failures to act on the advice and guidance of treaty bodies um, not much has changed. So there is a clear need to hold Australian governments to account and we do that through our international human rights institutions but we need to also ensure domestic accountability and we do that through coalitions and campaigns building community and public support for the reforms that are needed but that's again it's, it's it needs a concerted determined effort. So it's been something that's been brought to their attention for many years and it's really in their hands now. <laughs> Totally. And the evidence is all there. Uh, it's political will, which is lacking here. Looking to the future, Andrew and Charlena each offered their areas of expertise to suggest possible solutions to be used to reduce the over-representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adults and youth in prisons across Australia. What other solutions do you believe are necessary to address the overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth in the criminal justice system? Look, uh, I think an easy response to that would simply be to implement the recommendations of so many recent inquiries and reviews into youth justice systems in Australia, starting with the Northern Territory Royal Commission into the Protection and Detention of Children in the Northern Territory. We had a review in Victoria, its youth justice system. We had a review in Queensland, uh, the Atkinson Review, and so many well-researched and evidence-based solutions were proffered up in these final reports of these inquiries and reviews. So that's the easy answer. And there's some really, I say, easy legal and policy changes that could happen overnight if governments were willing, again, backed up by the evidence. So raising the age of criminal responsibility is one, from 10 to 14, stop the child protection to prison pipeline and there's a whole range of changes to these institutions including the establishment of protocol to prevent criminalization of children out of home care address the barriers to school engagement retention uh, so stop expelling and suspending kids because of behavioral issues disability issues and trauma needs actually invest in trying to support these kids to stay in school and to learn and definitely addressing hearing and other health needs to those kids prioritising and legislating portions and diversionary options um, in contrast to the formal system and to legislate uh, to that the principle of arrest or detention as a last resort. So there are some quick fixes 
that are backed by the evidence in all of these inquiries. So, Andrew, what do you believe to be an effective approach in decreasing the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adults and youth in incarceration and detention? I think the key is building a, building a strong evidence base. One of the things that we haven't done very well is to test ideas as rigorously as we've tested new drugs. Too much of, these, of the policy in, uh, in criminal justice and also in Indigenous policy has been driven by ideology rather than evidence. But we're, we, you know, we're not searching for a new coronavirus vaccine by saying, what does our ideology tell us? We're searching for it by putting the new, the, the potential treatments to a test, comparing them in a double-blind context against a uh, uh, randomly selected control group, and then looking at how the outcomes vary. That sort of scientific rigour is what we ought to be bringing to criminal justice. Closing the gap is in incarceration is just as hard a challenge as curing cancer. So let's bring the, the scientific rigour that we bring to health problems, to the, these social problems as well. How important are culturally inclusive solutions and interventions in tackling this overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth in the criminal justice system? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Aboriginal people and Aboriginal community-controlled organisations are clearly best placed to engage, support and respond to the unique needs and experiences of children from their own communities. They're children that we know. We know um, what has been their life experiences. So, we feel like we've clearly got to hold a place of respect and legitimacy when it comes to the response. And we are clearly focused on trying to help that child help their family and work with respected elders and other respected community members to help understand why that young person's been in trouble and what are the causal factors that have led to their involvement in the criminal legal system. Yeah, I, I've obviously seen some really progressive and, and empowering solutions that have been designed by and delivered by Aboriginal communities. Um, I've seen some that have been evaluated were the subjects of the integral commission's review. So as an example, there's Kuby Island's Youth Diversion Unit, and that's, that was reviewed in 2014. I'll just read from this, but it found that the program was culturally competent and useful in reconnecting young people to cultural norms, whilst directly addressing the factors that contribute to offending behaviour, such as substance misuse, boredom, and disengagement from work or education. It was successful because they were able to respond and resolve family and community disputes. It was like a mediation service. Andrew, moving to the new Closing the Gap initiative that was released in July this year, two targets included are the reduction of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adults held in incarceration by at least 15% by 2031, and a reduction of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people held in detention by at least 15% by 2031. As far as we understand, the government, in partnership with the Coalition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peak Organisations, have only reached agreements on the specific targets. Policies, programs and structures to implement, monitor and achieve these targets are yet to be finalised. Do you have any idea on how the government plans to implement, monitor and achieve these targets? Look, I don't. We've in my political party, the Labor Party, has been pushing pretty strongly for the inclusion of uh, Indigenous incarceration targets. It's something we took to the 2019 election and we've raised frequently. We're, we're not convinced that this shows much ambition. 
the idea of a 15% uh, reduction in incarceration by 2031 seems pretty uh, pr pretty modest and uh, and would mean that uh, that parity was uh, probably a century away so i think we can we can do better on this and i think it is vital to to work with indigenous communities to figure out how to to reduce indigenous incarceration yeah very important to include their voice yeah exactly. i mean to be sorry to, just to be precise about that the 15% incarceration by 2031 gets you parity by 2093. Yeah, wow. That's a very humble approach to it. And Charlena, what are your views on the targets, specifically the one for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth? Well, uh, the target to me appears woefully inadequate and it doesn't really reflect the true intention or spirit behind Close the Gap, which is about trying to achieve equality in health and life expectancy outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men, women and children. And this it's really a slim target. So it's just a reduction of an ever widening gap that seems to be worsening each year. And of course, results in adverse experiences and harm for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. So I'll, I'll leave it at that, but I just want to also say it's too early to say whether the target itself will result in any significant change. We haven't been provided any information about the framework behind the agreement, like what actions or strategies will be put in place to achieve that goal and how governments will be held to account. And for me, there are a range of law reforms and policy reforms that I just mentioned earlier, like raising the age, like legislating diversion and portion options that will have this, this outcome. These, to me, are clear steps that could be taken that are measurable why we're we not trying to um, be truthful around how we're going to get systemic change. I'd like to thank both you, Shalina, and Andrew for joining us today on behalf of myself, Catherine, Andrew, and the Organization for Old Peace. Your expertises have really brought a new understanding to the situation that I'm sure many of our listeners, as well as myself, have not heard before. It has been eye-opening to hear from both of you, and again, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And can we get people to please get onto the website, raisetheage.org.au, and sign the petition we need to show our decision makers, our governments, that we back the call to raise the age. We don't want kids in prisons. Thank you. Uh, thank you for, your, uh, for, for doing uh, uh, what I think is, uh, is, is a really important podcast on, uh, on some of the world's top issues. Again, this has been Monica Sager, Catherine Everest, and Andrew Bernstein for the Organization for Rural Peace's podcast, The Peace Production. Make sure to tune in next time where you listen to your podcasts.